Hey, Beauty Needs Me family. I am one of your hosts, Dooney. And I'm Talia. And if you're new to the podcast, Beauty Needs Me is an inclusive beauty podcast where we host honest conversations about beauty, skincare, and self-care that cross color, culture, and country lines. This episode, we are talking to the amazing Dr. Casey Means. She is a Stanford-trained physician, as well as being co-founder and chief medical officer of health company Levels. As we all know, a huge part of maintaining healthy skin is living a healthy lifestyle. You often hear people talk about the importance of water intake for skin health, um, but the foods we consume and our overall health affect our skin far beyond just drinking gallons of water. So we are here today to get the scoop from Dr. Casey. Hey, Dr. Casey. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. Sure, welcome to the pod. Okay, so before we get into levels, let's understand a little bit about how wellness was introduced to you as a child, like wellness Mm. and beauty. Like what were your initial thoughts about what it meant to be healthy and what beauty was? Ooh, that is a great question. Man, this is going far back. I want to run to my bookshelf because I actually have a lot of beauty books on there that are very vintage from my childhood. But to be perfectly honest, I um, I really loved like makeup and all things beauty and actually studied like makeup quite a bit when I was a child. I loved Kevin Aquan. I don't know if he's a makeup yep. artist that you guys are familiar with. Oh, he yeah, these- absolutely these huge coffee table books called like making faces and face forward. He unfortunately died, um, Mm -hmm. tragically very young, um, in I think the early two thousands, but, um, but these books were just, um, so artistic and I really, really loved them. I had Bobby Brown, teenage beauty, and, um, those were some of my favorites. And one of the things, so I loved it from the artistic and the creative perspective. And I always thought that beauty was a fun way to sort of be artistic every day and sort of how you present yourself to the world. Um, Bobby Brown's book, which I think was in the late nineties, early two thousands, she started talking a little bit about how our diet and our lifestyle impact our beauty Mm. and our skin. And, And that was really early on to be talking about some of those things, but it definitely made an impression on me. She was talking about water intake and things like that and vegetables. Um, and then, you know, I think as, uh, as time went on, more books came out about how, how food intake and, and diet and things like that kind of impact beauty. There was um, the, the clear skin prescription came out and things mm-hmm. like that. So I, got, I was really interested in biology and health and you know, was really interested in that in high school and pre-med and college. And so I really loved that sort of more sciencey aspect of, yeah. of beauty and health. And, um, and then it, it, you know, beauty became, I think, ultra sciencey for me, really more in college. I was, um, I was at Stanford sort of right after the Human Genome Project wrapped up and um, uh, personalized genetic companies like 23andMe were starting to come online. And so I started thinking a lot more about like how the interaction between genetics and environment affected things like beauty that initially early in life, I thought of, I thought of beauty much more as like makeup and creams and lotions and things like that. And now thinking like, Oh, how much of this is actually coming from, you know, the interaction between our genes and our environment. And so I remember like learning something really interesting about, um, 
how leucine, which is a branched chain amino acid, um, this, this sort of falls under the heading of nutrigenomics, which is something I was really interested in early on in this whole ecosystem of personalized genetics in college. But nutrigenomics is how food compounds affect gene expression. And there was this one example, I read this paper about how leucine, which is a, a branched chain amino acid found in like dairy and beef um, and a lot of other animal products, like it actually goes into the cells and it turns on this little protein called a GTPase, which then turns on this genetic pathway called the mTOR genetic pathway. And when that's upregulated, it will make you produce, it increases protein synthesis, fat synthesis, and cell division. And when this happens in the skin, especially in the oil glands of the skin, it can result in too much oil production, too much cell proliferation, and can generate acne. And so, wow. yeah. And so I was like, oh, wow. So by reducing leucine intake, um, maybe reducing some of these foods, it could have a big impact on, on something like acne. So um, that was just fascinating to me and kind of sparked an initial interest in like how, how our food and how our environment coupled with our genetic blueprint can like work together to really express, um, you know, health of our skin and, and these sort of, you know, um, these characteristics that we maybe think are like inherent, like beauty, but are actually really on a, you know, some things that can be in flux and, and the way our, our, you know, skin health and our appearance can be, are actually like kind of very dynamic in terms of how we live and, and what we expose ourselves to. So, um, yeah. So since then, I would say like, I, I've been most interested in the whole beauty thing from like, how can we just like harness our, our genetic blueprints to kind of just create the best expression of health in all ways. But of course, going along with that, it's going to be things like our, you know, quote unquote beauty in our skin and, and whatnot. Yeah. So, um, ultimately it's all wrapped up together. Um, yeah. so let me also say, um, I forgot an accolade when I introduced you. Um, you're also the associate editor of the international journal of disease reversal and prevention. So we're literally going to get cured on the inside out today. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this is even more exciting than people think. It's like, we're, we're fixing acne, we're right. fixing diabetes. Jesus, like, yeah. yeah. Like we're, we're literally going to transform inside out. Today. <laughs> but, so. Oh, I, I just wanted to just say one thing, which is that I, I think I, got, I I jumped right into uh, to the science there. But I would say to really answer the question, like what is beauty um, to me, and like how that was introduced to me, I will have to give my um, parents a shout out because they really promoted a message in our family and for me as a child that beauty was. Um, really not about anything relating to looks or things like that, but was really about like living with integrity, living with joy, um, you know, sharing your light, sharing your love. And that that's that. what was beautiful. And, and so I'm, I'm very like grateful, um, for that. And, uh, so I think, and, and that still resonates, it holds true, you know, for me today, you know, what is, um, what is when you walk around on the street, like I think the things that jump out as beautiful are the things that are sort of people living their truth, people expressing themselves honestly and with integrity and um and being kind and 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 sharing their light. So yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Cause and like that literally not sucking just kind of makes you more attractive. Like just kind of <laughs> when you don't suck. Like a decent, yeah. a decent human being. Right? <laughs> so um Casey, oh wait, first of all, should we call you Casey or Dr. Casey? Yes, Casey. Right. I just said Dr. Casey. I was like, Dr. Casey. I know. <laughs> Give you all, all your titles. So what, when did you decide you wanted to be a physician? Ooh, I decided I wanted to be a physician 
it kind of was end of high school, early college. I was so fortunate to be at this very weird all girls high school that we did not have school on Wednesdays and we actually had to get a job on Wednesdays. And so you wait a minute, where, where was the school? (laughs) It was in Northern Virginia. It's called the Madeira school. It's, you know, my favorite place on earth. I really adore it. And, um, they wanted, you know, to teach you how to be a contributing citizen to society. And so, um, yeah, so we didn't have school on Wednesdays and they helped you write resumes and do interviews and essentially get a job. And so, um, sophomore year was mostly focused on like public service. And then junior year, you had to have a job in politics or on Capitol Hill. This was in, in the DC area. And then Mm -hmm. senior year, it was kind of like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like get a job in that. So I got to work in a lab at the national Institutes of health and it was in clinical hematology. And so I was working in this, um, lab that was on sickle cell disease and, um, studying, uh, so I was working with patients in the morning. I was actually taking blood from patients with sickle cell disease in the morning in the phlebotomy lab. And then we would be doing research on it sort of in like later in the afternoon. And so got to interact one-on-one with a lot of children and patients who, um, had this terrible genetic disease. Um, and that experience was just absolutely transformative to me and the sort of bench to bedside culture of medicine of were any um, of them i'm sorry what were were any of them white because i feel like you you never hear about white people developing sickle cell, sickle cell yeah as far as i remember i don't think i interact with any white pa- interacted with any white patients with sickle cell disease like you know yeah. as we all know it's unfortunately a disease that's predominantly yeah. um, it's always so fascinating to me like what yeah. is that yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> yeah. But th- so that was just very, very inspiring. And, um, and seeing that, um, yeah, how research and clinical practice could connect to hopefully move the needle on some of these, the genetic diseases was very interesting to me. And then I went to, um, Stanford. And like I mentioned, like, it was just like teeming with so much exciting stuff going on with personalized genetics. And I got to work at 23andMe when I was in college, when they were really, really early. And, you know, it was just so empowering thinking like, yeah, we, we sort of have this view of health as like, it's deterministic. We've got this genetic code and that's what we're going to be. But that's just one half of the story. Like that's mm-hmm. just the blueprint, how that blueprint is then expressed. That is health and disease. And, you know, even with something like sickle disease, which is like a single point mutation that causes misfolding of the hemoglobin, like how people, um, you can actually have differential sort of severity of the disease. And we know that people who have very stressful situations or have different oxygen, like um, are in um, situations with different oxygen concentrations, like in the air, like it can exacerbate the disease. And so even that is like an environmental exposure that can like sort of change how the disease is expressed. And so, um, so, so there's almost no aspect of health and um, that I don't think can be, the needle can be moved. Um, there's almost no aspect of health where I don't think you can have some moving of the needle by changing the environmental exposures. And so, yeah, so that wow. was really how I came to healthcare and, and realizing like, it's not deterministic. We certainly can be predisposed to huge things based on our genetic code, but, but how that's expressed is really where the money is, I think in medicine and empowering people to live lives and make choices that can do the best they can with that particular, you know, genetic sequence of ACTs and Gs. And, um, and then there's this whole new area of epigenetics, which is not only the genetic code, but how the genes are folded and how like you, like the three-dimensional structure of genes. And that we know has a huge impact on uh, our lifestyles have a huge impact on that. So we know that, um, 
you know, stress and childhood trauma and things like that, um, these experiences actually can change the three-dimensional folding of our genes. Childhood and trauma? That, yeah. Like it can physical or emotional? Both. Emo- Adver- really? Basically like emotional, adverse childhood mental? events of any type can change wow. the folding. Yeah. Well, that explains why Black people get sickle cell. You know, we just have all the trauma, generational trauma. You know, if we're living in like urban environments and it's like, you know, the air is messed up and, you know, all of these, these kind of things. And then when our genes fold, it's like, well, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. But, there, but there's also a lot of white people, Hispanic people who have those conditions as well. They maybe just it may not be publicized or they may not be in inner cities, but I'm also thinking of like a lot of white people that are like in the Appalachian region, right? Mm-hmm. That are in super rural or maybe trailer park areas. But there are also a lot of white people in America for, for black people to be a small subset. And then the majority of sickle cell, it's mm-hmm. like, because our circumstances are vastly different with just this little group of people mm-hmm. where there are, a lot of white people and only a little bit or not as much that have, you know, these economic situations that are similar to underrepresented communities. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not a doctor. I'm sorry. No, no, it's, it's true. I mean, and sickle cell disease is, is a, t- is a little bit different than the folding just because this one, it's, it's, it's this unique disease in the sense that there is one, we have 3 billion base pairs in our genes, um, like in our DNA, like there's 3 billion individual um, ACTGs that make up our genetic code. And one, one of them is mutated and switched to yeah. create sickle cell disease. It's, and that's heritable, you know, that it can be passed on, unfortunately. And so, um, but then with these, with this, this folding, so how that long string of genes is then balled up and sort of like what the body has access to express in that genome, that um, we know that, yeah, like stress, adverse childhood events can change that and can change even what your body can get to in the genome to express. And that's this whole new field of epigenetics that wasn't even really be talking about when I was, you know, 15 years ago when I was in college. And, and what's especially crazy is that that folding pattern is heritable as well. So let's say you had a very stressful event. It caused some sort of change in, um, in the epigenetic three-dimensional folding of the genome, you can actually pass that on to your kids. And so you're not only passing the genetic code, but the folding. And so, I mean, there's, I couldn't, can't say enough about how, you know, we need to be working on early childhood experiences if we want to do anything in terms of moving the needle on health, especially when it comes to um, populations that have just, that are, you know, systemically, um, disadvantaged in terms of our healthcare system. Like we need to be not just thinking about reactionary healthcare and what do we do once people actually develop disease, but how are we, how are kids, you know, what is the pregnancy like? What is the first Mm. year of life like in terms of nutrition and stress and parental support and all of these things and family leave. And like, if we're not thinking about those things, it's going to be really hard to ever play catch up in our healthcare system on the back end. So yeah, yeah, we need to, you know, it it all feeds in. Yeah do we know what happens? Like, so it's, it's mutated. And then like, how does that affect a person over their lifetime? Mm. In terms of sickle cell disease or, or the more the epigenetic side of things? More of, of the epigenetic. Yeah. But like, yeah. Like, are there, does it, you know, like, like what's it doing to them once it, once it happens? Mm. Well, yeah, it's, so you can imagine like, let's say you have, an important gene that's related to like 
inflammation or immunity or something like that. Like, you know, and I'm just going to come up with like an example, like there's a gene called NF-kappa B, which is like a master inflammatory gene. And we know that like stressful events can change to, to bind up into, for the genome to kind of bind up into a different three-dimensional structure and to sort of to block the body's ability to express certain genes. It involves a process called methylation and histone modification. There's these proteins that are like balls that the DNA will actually wind around. And that process either blocks or opens up different parts of the genome to be expressed. And so you can imagine if some really important gene, like an inflammatory gene or a gene associated with you know, hormones or cell proliferation, if those are sort of inaccessible or more accessible because of this structural change to the genome that is related to stress or trauma or diet or whatever, that it could definitely change just sort of the long-term outcomes of our cell biology. So yeah, it's a it's really fascinating, Gotta but watch that. Yeah. we, yeah, I mean, it's like, how do we make it so that, you know, uh, like fundamentally, you know, we have safe, healthy, nutritious pregnancies for all women in our country, you know, that we have excellent hospital care for everyone, um, that we create environments and homes that are safe, access to good nutrition, access to quality sleep. Um, you know, we develop coping skills and stress management skills early in our life that we can use throughout the rest of our lives. And we create environments where we can exercise and move. Like if we, how do we get those things down? Like that's really, um, you know, it, those are kind of the foundational pillars of, of health, you know, um, it's it's true when people say like stress can kill you. Like, oh yeah. Okay. So now let's tell us what levels. (laughs) Like levels is gonna tell, save us all, right? Tell everyone what is levels, the the premise of it, how you got involved with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, levels is a company that I co-founded, and I'm I'm chief medical officer of it now. And um, levels is you can kind of think of it as. Fitbit for your diet. <laughs> so right now we don't have a single tool to track how our nutrition is affecting our health in real time. Mm. We have we have a lot of exercise trackers, you know, we've got Apple Watch, we've got Fitbit, we've got sleep trackers, you know, Aura Ring, Eight Sleep, Whoop. We have stress trackers even that are testing like our heart rate variability, which is an objective marker of stress, like the Aura Ring and the Whoop. And we don't have and these can tell us just in real time like, okay, this is what's happening with your exercise, your sleep, your heart rate, your stress but nothing that you can put on your body where that says what you just ate is problematic for your health and will cause problems. It's, it's never existed, but mm. levels is essentially solving that. And in, in doing so kind of completing this sort of like modern health stack of tools mm. that we can use to have real time feedback on how our choices are affecting our health. We do this by giving people this wearable sensor that's called a continuous glucose monitor. And it's this tiny little quarter sized device that you stick on the back of your arm. And it's traditionally been used as actually a treatment tool for people with um, type one or type two diabetes. It gives them their blood glucose, sends it straight to their phone every 15 minutes. But we were looking at this technology and said, you know, this is actually going to be extremely valuable for anyone who wants to understand how food is affecting their health. Glucose is this critical primary energetic substrate in our body. It is foundational for how our, our cells run. And you know, ultimately we're just made up of cells. We're trillions of cells, this big cell package. And so each of those cells needs to be working properly and be able to process energy properly to function. If, the, if that's not happening, we will not have health. And so 
um, by tracking glucose and learning how to stabilize it and optimize it, we can make it so that each of our cells is essentially processing energy more effectively. And in doing wow. so, it's really low hanging fruit for improving, you know, all aspects of health. So Levels gives people access to people who, who this, to this technology, um, access to the software, I'm sorry, access to the hardware and these wearable devices, which normally people haven't been able to get access to unless you're type one or type two diabetic. Mm -hmm. um, and then we've created software that takes that raw glucose data stream, these every 15 minute glucose time points and transforms it into information that's really actionable. So you can start to really modulate your diet and lifestyle to stabilize your glucose. And what we want is stable glucose. Um, the average American, unfortunately, is walking around with super ups and down swings in their glucose all day long. And that's because we're eating, you know, a lot of refined processed sugar in our country, a lot of refined processed grains, and we are just giving our glucose like, we're just like running all over the place. And we know that this is actually mm. really, really harmful to health. Over time, as you spike your glucose over and over and over again, what happens is your body releases insulin, which is the hormone that tells your cells to take up glucose. So you spike your glucose, you spike your insulin. And over time, as you spike your insulin over and over and over and over again, um, your cells essentially become numb to it. They're like, there's too much insulin around. We're going to kind of block it. It's, and so your body's like, oh gosh, well, we got to get the glucose into the cells. So we're going to produce more insulin. So then you become, you actually end up having too high of insulin. And that creates a lot of problems in the body. You become insulin resistant. Your body's not taking up glucose as well. You're not allowed, you're not able to make cellular energy as efficiently. And this can affect every single cell in the body, which is why glucose dysregulation and what I would call broad, more broadly metabolic dysfunction, meta metabolism being how we process energy in the body is related to so many different disparate symptoms that seem unrelated, but they're all tied together by glucose dysregulation. So things as different as, you know, the most overt things you can imagine are like diabetes and obesity. These are obviously overt, you know, glucose dysregulation, but things like cancer, stroke, heart disease, heart attacks, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's dementia, which is now being called type three diabetes. These are all wow. much increased risk if you have blood sugar dysregulation because fundamentally wherever that blood sugar dysregulation is showing up, whatever cell type or organ, that's where you're gonna see a symptom. So they seem different, but they're all rooted in the same physiology. And then there's all this sort of other stuff that I really don't think most people realize is rooted in insulin resistance, glucose um, dysregulation, metabolic dysfunction, which is things like infertility, like polycystic ovarian syndrome, our number one leading cause of infertility in our country is essentially insulin resistance of the ovaries. It's a metabolic disease wow. of the ovaries. Things like erectile dysfunction, the way that blood sugar interacts with the small vessels in the penis causes erectile dysfunction. It blocks the blood flow from getting there things like depression and anxiety is how this shows up in the brain. It's not the only cause of depression and yeah. anxiety, but it's a huge contributor. And so in chronic fatigue, um, chronic pain, all of these things are where this basically the result of where glucose dysregulation, energy mismanagement in the body is showing up. And then where I think it really circles back also to, to what we're you know talking about today is skin health. Like so many skin conditions are fundamentally rooted in blood sugar dysregulation and, um, and metabolic dysfunction. And the ones that I think are most important to be aware of is wrinkles, 
huge impact on blood sugar and development of wrinkles. Acne directly related to blood sugar, psoriasis, um, acanthosis nigricans, which is like um, these dark velvety patches that can develop on people's skin who have insulin resistance, Um, hydronitis separativa, which is like painful pus-like lumps under the skin, and then even skin tags because insulin is like a pro-growth signal in the body and people who are insulin resistant have more skin tags. So yeah, so acne, wrinkles, you know, pustules, like dark patches, all of these things actually can be improved by getting blood sugar under control. And I just, it's just, you know. So so let's talk about some of these, right? So let's talk about glucose and its relation to wrinkles. Um, Mm. I read a blog post that that Levels did uh, regarding glycation. Mm -hmm. Um, so can you explain to us kind of what that is, um, and kind of like how glucose leads to wrinkles and then, and then I'm going to circle back to you and tell you something about black people, but you go first. Ooh. Okay. Um, so the wrinkle story is so fascinating. Um, and I like a quick aside, like I, one of the reasons I got so interested in like devoting my career to helping people improve their metabolic function is because I actually started out in surgery. I was a head and neck surgeon for five years, um, ear, nose and throat surgeon. And a lot of that is cosmetic surgery related to the face. So surgeries for wrinkles, um, like facelifts and, you know, eyelid lifts and also tons of like Botox and like neuromodulators for wrinkles. So a lot of these procedures are like very invasive and very morbid and very painful. And it's, it, it really got me thinking like, was there anything we could do to like make, to do something to essentially get people, prevent people from having to get to this, yeah. this stage. And, and you know how it is. Like you walk down the street, you could see two women who are 70 and have completely different skin in terms of wrinkles. And part of that is of course going to be genetics, but a lot of that is going to be lifetime exposures to you know, different things. Um, and that's going to move the needle on sort of the expression of something like wrinkles or skin health. So, yeah. but I became pretty fascinated by this because it's, it's quite well established physiology and I'll share a little bit about it. So, um, so first of all, like what is skin aging? What is wrinkles? So wrinkling happens from um, essentially the result of a wide variety of like dysfunctions of cellular processes. And this includes thinning of the skin Um, the reduction of, and like the diminished function of some of our structural proteins in the skin, like collagen and elastin and vimentin. These are proteins that keep our skin like turgor good. Um, Also reduced blood flow to the skin. And also as we age, we have decreased cell turnover. So all of those things ultimately will lead to sort of sagging and wrinkling and whatnot. But excess sugar seems to speed up the process of all of these things. And one of, one of the reasons for that is because of glycation. So glycation happens when um, there's excess blood sugar in the bloodstream um, and sugar gets stuck on things. It essentially just like sticks to things around the body like proteins and fats and things like that. Um, and so when a, when a sugar molecule sticks to something, it becomes what's called an advanced glycation end product, which is abbreviated ages, which is perfect. Um, and that alters the ability of a protein to do its normal function. And it can affect proteins all over the body, but the most plentiful protein in the entire body is collagen. So the skin really? is the largest. Yeah. Oh, duh, that makes sense. Skin is the yeah. largest organ. Yeah. It's yeah. The largest organ in the body. I mean, skin 
And skin is, you know, skin is the canary in the coal mine for all aspects of health and wellness because it's the most visible and it ultimately is being affected by all the other processes that are going on inside. So it is, um, you know, the harbinger of dysfunction internally. And so collagen, most plentiful protein in the body, glucose is getting stuck to it via glycation and that totally alters collagen's function. So collagen, um, basically like it's a structural protein in the skin. And when you, when it's glycated, it cross links, it forms these weird tangles and cross links, which causes stiffness of the skin. And some of that wrinkling that we see, it also changes, glucose also changes the molecular charge of collagen, which prevents the protein from interacting normally with cells and proteins around it. Um, And the other thing is that when uh, collagen is glycated, it prevents collagen from being turned over and broken down. And so you don't get as much as that like normal turnover of collagen. So in all these ways, sugar is just stopping collagen from working properly. Um, It also affects other proteins, vimentin, cytokeratine, that are all critical for for structural support. And um, there was a study showing that... um, tight glycemic control. So keeping glucose really tight and in a narrow range by like diet and lifestyle over just four months can reduce the glycated collagen in the skin by 25%. So whether that changes wrinkles, that was not studied in that, right. but you, the, but it changes yeah. the core yeah. physiology. It, it's a correlation. Yeah. yeah. Duny, were you going to say something? Yeah. First of all, this is fascinating. So because one, I did not realize my, cause one of my questions was going to be why track glucose levels? Like why mm-hmm. that over anything else? But what I'm hearing from you is that any kind of imbalance in those levels really leads to these metabolic disorders, these different diseases, like everything comes back to sugar, but, but why, or I don't want to say sugar, glucose. Why, Mm -hmm. like, why is glucose so impactful? Like what about it? It's impactful because it is the easiest source of energy for our cells. So for a cell to function, you need cellular energy and cellular energy is called ATP. It's essentially like the little, you know, power coin in a video game that lets your, all the different processes in the cells actually happen. You need to produce ATP and glucose can go into the cell, be processed by the mitochondria, this little part of the cell and spit out ATP. And that's a really efficient process. And if a cell is not doing that properly, it's not going to function properly. And if that's in the ovary, it might look like infertility. If that's in the brain, it might look like dementia. If that's in the heart, it might look like cardiovascular disease. If that's in the blood vessels, it might look like erectile dysfunction or hypertension. It, it's just where it's, and, and these things, of course, the body's all connected. So if you have a big problem with how you're managing blood sugar and you become insulin resistant, meaning you're not taking up glucose efficiently into the cells, you can imagine how it could really affect all aspects. And, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. It's not like a light switch where one day you're totally insulin sensitive and the next you're not. It's like decades of marching along this pathway. And so anything we can do early on when we're young and, you know, are kind of fresh in terms of this, you know, that is the time I think to intervene. Like imagine if, if, if we can shape a diet and a lifestyle that keeps glucose pretty flat and stable every day, you're essentially, you're, it's not like one day you're going to wake up with insulin resistance. If you've, if you've been doing that every day, you are not going to walk into the doctor's office one day and have a surprise where like, Oh, by the way, you're diabetic because you've been looking, you've been watching and you've been optimizing. And so it's really like an incredible insurance policy. And you know, it's, you could just, people could just say like, well, why not just 
eat low carb and not eat much sugar and exercise. Like it doesn't seem like you have to track it. But what's really interesting is that one, healthy living strategies, just blanketed statements don't seem to really work because we were doing that. Everyone knows to exercise and eat healthy and not eat a ton of sugar, but like 72% of our country is overweight or obese. Right. We have 128 million Americans with diabetes and pre-diabetes. It's like this, that's not right. really okay. working, unfortunately. Because Snickers need, are good. Yeah. Like we need they're delicious. to track in it. Yeah. <laughs> Tracking gives you a level of accountability yeah. and granularity that's really helpful. But also the such interesting research like five years ago, um, out of a lab in Israel called the Weissman Institute that showed that actually like all three of us could eat the exact same carbohydrate source. We could all eat a banana and all three of us might have completely different uh, glucose elevations from that banana. And that has to do with lots of different things. Genetics are um, how much exercise we're doing, but also one of the big factors is our microbiome composition. So how your microbiome interacts with the food actually predicts how much your glucose is going to go up. So maybe a banana is like a great, a great, um, option for Talia, but it's a terrible option for me if I'm trying to really like zero in on low glucose. So, mm. um, so it, there's actually this interpersonal variability yeah. between how two people respond and we could have totally opposite reactions to the same carb source. So it's hard to give blanket statements about nutrition yeah. when we now know that it's actually super variable person to person. So I guess what I'm wondering is if there is any research regarding glucose and melanin, because what I see being the issue is that we know that black people have higher levels or higher numbers of diabetes. I don't know if it's type one or type two, but just type diabetes. Yeah. But then we also know that black don't crack. So I can see it being really difficult to convince, you know, a generation of black people who grew up on Kool-Aid, whose skin looks like they were just born to monitor their glucose or to convince them that the glucose that's going into their body is not only going to give them, you know, potentially diabetes, but also it's going to make, also, also it's affecting their skin from the inside, even if they can't necessarily see it as like acne on the mm, outside, yeah. you know, because I, I think with a lot of these kind of like health things, um, you know, especially if you have what you would consider like good skin or whatever, it's going to be very difficult to say like, oh, well, you know, my, you know, Angela Bassett doesn't monitor her glucose. Forgive me, Angela. I have no idea what she does. Um, but it's like, she hasn't been monitoring her glucose for, you know, 60 years and she looks like this. So why should I all of a sudden, you know, Sorry. change what I'm doing? Yeah. yeah. So I was, uh, Casey, real quick, I was going to, kind of asked that Celia, but in a different way, because what struck me was the fact that, um, you know, there's this, I feel like the messaging is black people eat too much sugar, which is why we get diabetes. Mm -hmm. Right. But we're now seeing that there's a correlation between that glucose imbalance and wrinkles, right. Which black people don't typically get. Mm -hmm. And then you also said other things such as cancer, such as infertility, such as Alzheimer's disease. Like these are all things that I have never heard people say are associated with, you know, a glucose imbalance. Sugar, maybe more recently, because I, 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 I'm sorry, cancer. I feel like I've heard that people say that uh, sugar can feed 
cancer mm-hmm. cells. But so like Talia is saying, just it's, it's connected, but I feel like we're looking at it, you know, in two similar ways, maybe not from the exact same lens. Like, yeah, how do you yeah. convince Black people that you've got to track your sugar? But then also, how do you also let white people know that you know, their sugar regulation being off is, is, is part of some of these skin issues and some of these other health issues. Oh my gosh. That's such a great question. And honestly, not one that I have an amazing answer to, to be honest. Like I, that's a, it's very, very interesting, um, to think, you know, like you're saying like this might wrinkles might not be so much of a predominant, issue for the black population, but there still might be underlying blood sugar dysfunction. And that's a physiology that I, yeah, that I'm not hundred percent sure of. I think what I would say is, well, a couple things. Um, one, I do think the relationship between race and blood sugar and diet is kind of a very interesting, interesting topic. Um, and I just, um, I just read this great book by Mark Hyman, a physician called food fix that talks about a lot about the systemic, essentially racial disparities in, in food and food access and how that's affecting health outcomes. And, you know, basically if you look at populations like white and Asian populations have the lowest rates of diabetes, even though they're still extremely high, but Native American populations and Black populations, it's much, much higher. And mm. we can't attribute this to genetics because th- th- this is something that's happened over the past like 20, 30 years. And, um, and there's no strong evidence that there's some genetic difference in like our insulin receptors or something like that between different races. And so this is, this is almost certainly environmental. And what's interesting, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of there's a lot of messy stuff here. Like obviously our health system needs a huge amount of work in terms of um, access to healthcare in our country. Um, But also our food system is just so, there's a lot of huge problems in terms of um, how food is even marketed to different populations. Like Mm. food companies, especially processed food companies have been shown that they actually have like different spending amongst different racial groups for how they're targeting and doing ad spend for like high sugar foods who they're bringing on to do the advertisements and things like that. And, and really focusing a lot on children, especially um, in minorities to really sort of like push this product. And so there's just a lot of really um, crazy stuff, I think with especially the sugar industry and how it's impacting differentially impacting different populations. Um, And one thing that it kind of excites me about an idea, like a tool like CGM is that, this essentially cuts through like food marketing. Like let's say the food industry or the healthcare industry is, is not going to take the lead on, on being, um, you know, uh, helpful in moving the needle on things like chronic disease and, and blood sugar. If you have a sensor on, if you have the data, you can essentially know exactly how this stuff is affecting you. And it doesn't matter what the marketing is. It doesn't matter what people are saying. Like you have your own personal data and can can make your own decisions. So it really cuts through all that extra layer of, of problematic stuff with our, with our different industries. So I like that from like the, the empowerment um, side of things. Like you kind of just get to be like, this is the truth. I don't really care what these industries are saying. Like, this is what I need to do or whatnot. That doesn't, doesn't change the issues related to food access and access to healthy, nutritious foods, um, uh, and, you know, food deserts and all of this that we need to, you know, radically change in our country. But at least it gives people a little bit more power in the face of really loud and problematic industries. Um, 
So, so with the levels, you, so it's a, it's a device. You put and an it app, on your, right? And an yeah. app. Okay. And you put it on your arm or can it go anywhere? Does it have to it's go on your back arm? of your arm? Yeah. It has to go on the back of your arm. It's like the, the birth control. It's like the <laughs> everybody and it looks kind of cool and sleek it's got like a cool <laughs> patch on top of it but yeah and then you wear it all day every day or is there can you take it off at some point like what how does how, how exactly? much is it yeah because yeah. it sounds really fancy and elite. I'm like I, I can't afford it so <laughs> well it so you wear it for 14 days you stick it on and it stays on for 14 days and it's transmitting this data every 15 minutes to your phone and then you just pull it off and you put on a new one. And so two of these sensors would last a month, basically. Okay. Um, that right now, are, we're pre-launch. We haven't even launched fully. We're doing like a closed beta program. And so right now, that month of two pieces of hardware, a physician consultation to get access to this product and the prescription, having the sensors shipped to your home and access to the software, that month-long sort of package is mm -hmm. um, $399 right now. So it's a very high price point to start. Mm -hmm. This price point will become quite a bit lower over time because right now these are prescription only devices and they're not um, FDA approved for non-diabetic individuals. So they're not covered by insurance. But oh, one of our, nor I mean, our North Star goal at our company is to reverse the trend of metabolic dysfunction. You know, we're starting with these bio-optimizers and the biohackers and the performance athletes um, who, you know, have a very high willingness to, to pay for this type of device. But our goal is to, um, well, it's multifold strategy, but one is to pursue intensive clinical research to show that this is effective in terms of yeah. getting people's glucose levels down. And ultimately that may be able to feed into insurance coverage for this, mm -hmm. um, for the non-diabetic population. Um, and then, um, so clinical efficacy is a, efficacy is a big part of our, our strategy for this first year. The second thing is that um, hardware companies who make these sensors are starting to realize that people are really interested in personalized nutrition and people really are confused about what to eat. They're confused about nutrition. No one knows whether they should be doing like keto or paleo or vegan or whatever. And so objective information is like gold in nutrition right now. And this is really the only thing we have right now for objective feedback on nutrition. And so a lot of hardware manufacturers are coming online. Right now, there's only three companies that make CGMs. Um, and there's many coming down the pipeline in the next few years. And so I think that's going to really drive prices down as well, because there's going to be a lot more competition in the market. So, um, but you know, it would be, um, yeah. one, a, a, a investor, not an investor in our company, but sort of a, a very well-known investor and CEO, Esther Dyson. She just tweeted out the other day. She's like, I want to see this on a CGM on the arm of every second grader in America, because the idea would be that like, A, you could get people interested in science and biology and this and that, but also, you know, food marketing to kids is insane. Mm -hmm. Most other countries regulate food marketing to kids. We basically don't. We can just like put anything on the TV and tell kids anything and, you know, get them hooked on this stuff. And so to have kids actually seeing what these fruit loops and frosted flakes and blah, blah, blah are doing to their blood sugar could have really lasting impacts long-term for their overall health, yeah. so. I mean, what I will say, um, <laughs> so as I keep bringing this, this back to black people because I am one of those people who I do not do government things. Like ever since there was that Tuskegee syphilis experiment back in the day, I don't let the doctor stick no needles in me. I'm not taking your vaccines or doing your nothing. However, 
you've convinced me. So if you need me to be a test yeah. in the beta program, I am willing to be a test because but I she needs the informed consent. Look, okay. I, I literally just went hiking in LA and collapsed on the side of a mountain, okay? As if you saw me, you would be like, you look like you're in shape. That would be a lie. That would be a lie. <laughs> okay, I do a little on a treadmill and I have this band recently that I've been like doing these, these thigh things, but it's like, look, sis is probably going through some stuff on the inside relating to, mm-hmm. to, to yeah. glucose, you know? So- you know what else this, this, this um, reminds me of? So I, have you ever heard of Dr. Sabi? Mm. Oh, not me, you. Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> so there's Dr. Sabi, and I think there's, is it Brother Polite? I might. I don't know how to say um, it. I don't know how to say it. Okay, so they're basically, these are like hood doctors that like. Holistic. If they're holistic. They're holistic medicine. hood doctors. But yeah. when I say that, it's not, no, no, no. It's not, I'm not like throwing shade or trying to be detrimental or I mean like, uh, or discrediting them. I just mean that like a lot of black people look to them for like mm-hmm. advice. They follow mm-hmm. their tenants, the, you know, a lot of the work that they've, that they've talked about. That's what I mean by that. Holistic health care. Ho- okay. Holistic hood health care. So- <laughs> we, don't, we don't trust the government with our health. <laughs> right. Holistic hood health care, which is fine. <laughs> But anyway, my point being that they have been preaching for or had preached for years about how food changing our diet is what's necessary for black people to be healthy. Mm -hmm. Like they have preached, they have talked at length about, you're right. Yes. So holistically. Right. But have talked at length about how, you know, we should either be eating according to our blood type, which has been huge, like eating according to your blood type and how, if we're keeping certain diets, eating certain foods, making sure we're drinking alkaline water, all of these things to help ward off cancer and, and, you know, diabetes. And there's always a lot of resistance, I think, to what they're saying and people being like, oh, okay, whatever, whatever. But like, as you're speaking, I just can't help but be like, wow, all of those things. And I I haven't read or watched everything that they've put out, but it's essentially the, 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 it's essentially the same premise mm-hmm. about what you're putting into your body is what is directly affecting your health. Yeah. And actually, Casey, I think you're in the middle because I look at like, like traditional medicine and then like holistic medicine. And then I know you practice something called functional medicine. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's like right in the middle of being yeah. like a real ass doctor, but then also on some other shit. <laughs> That's kind of exactly how I see it. Like right in the middle. Yeah. Because ultimately, you know, these health behaviors and this more holistic living, what I'm interested in is how those choices translate to our biochemical reality. Like how those, how getting good sleep or not getting good sleep translates through hormones and our nervous system to actually create fundamentally different biochemical situations in our cells. So it's kind of like this merger between the two worlds. Like we know that, you know, poor sleep, you could just say like, someone could just say like, oh, get good sleep. It's important for health. But like, why is it important for health? It's important for health because like getting one hour or less of sleep a night makes you slightly more insulin resistant. It makes your insulin receptors less 
um, prime to pick up insulin. It'll make your glucose levels higher the next day. It changes your um, satiety hormone levels of leptin and ghrelin. So um, those levels, it, like leptin and ghrelin are two hormones that basically tell you whether you're hungry or not. And it will wow. completely change the levels and the balance of those hormones, making you more hungry if you're sleep deprived and also more likely to want carb rich foods. It changes your cortisol levels, which are your stress hormone levels. So like it, it is a health behavior, but ultimately becomes, it is that health behavior is molecular information. Yeah. And so, you know, how do you, you know, get that to a place where people understand it and then can maybe use some of the like biomarker tracking or whatnot to, to really buy into it and believe it and see how one-to-one that relationship is. Cause when you can close that loop and make that one-to-one relationship, that's where I think sustainable behavior change happens. When you buy into it and believe it, you'll do it. If it's nebulous and you're not sure if it's helping and it's a super delayed response between a somewhat difficult action, like getting to bed earlier and any like sort of health outcome, it's much harder to adopt. So it's all about shortening that time between the action and, you know, sort of like the health impact. So, um, so that's where I think glucose can be helpful. And what's also crazy is that food is not the only thing that impacts glucose. Like, like I was just mentioning with the insulin, a, a night of sleep deprivation can, can make your glucose worse the next day. Stress makes your glucose go up and sedentary behavior makes your glucose go up. So it's almost like this centralizing force amongst all these healthy behaviors we're all trying to do. Sleep more, yeah. stress less, exercise more, eat better. It's like- It's wellness, really. Wellness. It's, like, it's, it's wellness. It's not just one thing. It's like, it's everything, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. that. And so I, I also want to touch on infertility, especially mm. as it pertains to women. So I'm in my mid thirties. I haven't had my first child yet. I know it's going to happen soon. And, but I'm also very much, you know, I've accepted that I'm going to be an older mom and just according to science, right. Have a geriatric pregnancy, mm-hmm. but I'm not the only one. The vast majority of women I know, and a lot of my really close friends we're all in the same boat Mm -hmm. or maybe some of them have had one child and they're like, they know that they're going to still be an older mom because they're not finished having children. So for me, I think since the beginning of this year, I've really been focused on how can I just be healthy overall, right? I did this 21 day plant-based diet in May. It was life-changing because I was like, wow, I could really feel the difference in my body I could, t- I told Talia, like after that, I think I, I had like some sugar or something. I had this full on breakout and I was just mm-hmm. like, like just to see how, when I changed up how I ate, how my body reacted. So I've been more so very conscious now about well, what can I do in terms to bring it back to the, you know, having children, right? Only thing I can control is being healthy and, and my body. So what tips would you have for listeners who maybe this is at the forefront of their mind, but you know, they're, they're not tracking their glucose exactly, but just from your, some of the research that you've been involved in and and what you know of the, uh, glucose in, I guess, what is it? Glucose, what? Regulation. Regulation. Regulation, Yeah. 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 How that, what's the, what is the, the relation to infertility? or fertility. Yeah. Also just to really quick, like, like just to piggyback off of that, because levels is not widely available. Like what should we all be doing doing until we can get the program? Yeah. Yeah. Well, 
with the fertility side of things, so the relationship with, with glucose is really um, comes down to this condition, PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So that, which is, like I mentioned, the most common cause of infertility in our country and is fundamentally a metabolic disease. And when the, um, when there's too much insulin in the body, um, it essentially can stimulate the ovaries to produce more, um, male hormones, androgens, and that can create menstrual irregularity. And then that can create infertility. So, mm. um, so low glycemic diets and keto diets have been shown to be really effective for these populations. Um, but there hasn't been much in terms of studying how adding a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor onto some of those interventions to like really actually sort of, um, make the, you know, adding a CGM to a ketogenic diet or a low glycemic diet intervention can really sort of like empower it because then you can even finer tune how different foods you're eating, um, are impacting glucose. So I think that's going to be a big next wave and opportunity for people with PCOS to, mm -hmm. yeah, just track their glucose. If you can keep glucose low and down, like, you know, you're, you're moving in the right direction for your, yeah. for your underlying core physiology about PCOS. So, um, but, but I think you've really nailed it with the fertility um, thing and just really optimizing all aspects of wellness. Like I would kind of encourage people to just really double down on the basics and make them daily habits. So, you know, getting between seven, and eight hours of sleep per night, um, keeping glucose low, making sure you're getting tons and tons of antioxidants in your diet through, you know, plant-based sources, herbs, spices, because those antioxidants are going to reduce the free radicals in the body, these damaging reactive intermediates that can definitely affect um, things like fertility. Um, so, you know, plants are so powerful in protecting the body from aging and damage. Um, getting really quality omega-3s and making sure your fatty acid balance is, is right on. You know, um, we have a real... Uh, low amount of, uh, omega threes sort of, if you look at the whole population, like we're getting way more omega six fats than omega threes in our diet. Omega sixes are a type of fat that are much more inflammatory, um, and can cause more problems. And, and omega threes are anti-inflammatory and basically all of the cells in our body are made up of, they're surrounded by cell membranes, which are fat. Like every single cell in our body is actually surrounded by fat. And the ratio of omega threes to omega sixes in that fat capsule has a huge impact on mm -hmm um, on how our cells function and especially in the brain, which is like mostly made up of like tons of fat. And so eating, you know, fatty fish, if you're eating meat, like salmon, sardines, anchovies, mackerel, herring, and then plant-based sources like chia, flax, walnuts, um, and then reducing omega-6 sources, which is going to be like the refined processed vegetable oils, like soybean oil, safflower oil. These are fats that um, are more omega-6 focused, um, conventionally raised beef, chicken, eggs, um, chicken. I know, I know, but so you you're telling us to not to eat chicken. <laughs> we gotta I, end this interview right now. <laughs> <laughs> you were just raving about your food. No, no but you're right. You're right. No, you're right. Honestly. And when I did start eating chicken again, I was like, I, I, you didn't I won't feel say good. there was a noticeable difference, but I'm, I do crave more plant-based recipes. Mm -hmm. I will say that. For sure. And I would say like nothing, there's no like off the table in terms of nutrition. It's really about, you know, yeah. optimizing the, the context and the ratios. And, and I would say if you're going to eat animal protein, really shifting the framing of 
this is the way I look at food. And I've mentioned this a few times before is like food is molecular information. Food is great. It tastes good. It's pleasurable, but ultimately it's molecular information. It is both a signaling molecule for how our cells to function. It is also a building block of our cells. So if you think about it that way, like, and we're talking about chicken, you want to choose the best chicken molecular information you possibly can, which means you want to choose a really well-raised chicken that's been, you know, free range has had lots of exercise is eating like natural, healthy foods, grasses, whatever, and not just being like bombarded with genetically modified pesticide covered corn and soy. And the chick, two chickens raised in different environments are are going to be different molecular information for your body. One's going to have more omega threes. One's going to have more omega sixes. One's going to have more hormones than the others. One is going to, you know, have more saturated fat versus other types of fat. So basically it really comes down to just sourcing this food in the best way possible. And that might mean that it's three times more expensive. So what does that mean? Eat a three, eat a third of the chicken per week and replace it with plants, which are so much cheaper, you know, an organic zucchini is like 99 cents. Whereas like to eat a little bit less of it to make the balance sheet like work out, but so be it. Like, at least you're still getting what you love. You're getting better molecular information. It's better for the planet. And you're filling the rest of that, um, those calories to fill with like really nutrient dense food. So, so certainly not a like off the table type of thing, but just thinking about it in that sort of molecular information framework. So I have one like supplement industry question before we get into some of your personal questions. Um, When I think about stuff like, okay, so like digestion, right? Like does glucose affect digestion? Because you have supplements and I don't, I don't even really know if this is even considered a supplement, but think about, you know, a woman who is doing like flat tummy tea because so Mm -hmm. much of our beauty health it's like skincare and body. And it's like, oh, I can just drink this like, you know, diuretic tea. Um, and you're like, oh, it's a tea. Like it can't be that bad. But does glucose also affect kind of, um, yeah, like our digestion and kind of how our body is responding to food? Um, when I think about things like me personally, I'm pretty hungry like every two hours, like a baby, like my stomach is like, oh, you should eat something. So when Mm -hmm. people talk about like intermittent fasting, I was like, you must be kidding because I'm hungry every two hours, (laughs) you know, but I also, it takes me, I don't know, maybe six hours to digest something as basic. Like literally last week I was on the beach. We had a a chicken dinner and one of my friends- chicken? Girl, it was all they provided. Casey, I, I you had to do this. I had to do what I had to do. I, I am not, I am not a chicken eater. But okay, girl. It was, it was served like gourmet chicken on the beach, right? It was gourmet chicken on the beach. Try to chicken shame me, but go ahead. <laughs> it was like the most calm and peaceful chicken right. we've ever literally, seen. It grew it up literally in the, the beach. best chicken <laughs> from from Chick Fil A, right? <laughs> from Chick-fil-A but I have a friend who like her stomach was still flat after she ate this chicken dinner I was three months pregnant and I was like Mm. you know what is happening I'm also the same person who like fainted on the side of the mountain so I was like there's there's definitely something going on with like my body when it comes to food and like I'm just wondering if it has anything to do with glucose it Mm. may not you can tell me no well there's two things you said that I that I 
totally want to pounce on. So two things that like feel related to me. So one is this like after the hike feeling like you were going to faint. Oh and no, the, I, I fainted. On, oh, you actually, on the, I, it was like, you're okay. It's like <laughs> we, we were all, all hiking. And I was like, guys, first of all, I had already done the really difficult part of the hike. And then my friends are overzealous. And one of them had never been to LA. And it was like, oh, now let's do this like second small hike. And I was like, totally guys. And then of course I do not work out like that. And so as we're like on this incline, I'm like, guys, I feel dizzy. And I had to kind of pass out on the side oh of the God. twigs. And oh so one, one person stayed with me and they gave me like water and stuff. And then everyone else just continued while I sat on the path like a child <laughs> who needed tender <laughs> loving care. <laughs> oh my gosh. Had you had any snacks on the hike? <laughs> yeah, I, I had water and I had those unshelled pistachios. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is really interesting. So you mentioned that and you also mentioned that you're hungry every two hours. And I, I think those things it. are super related. And I actually, mm-hmm. I'm so excited to get you into the beta program because I think this is going to be really interesting for you. So this comes down to this question that is this concept that is really interesting called metabolic flexibility. So I talked a lot about how like glucose is one of our primary forms of energy in the body, but we also know like fat is a way to get energy in the body as well. And so we, we have basically about, we have blood glucose in our circulation that's floating around. We also have glucose stored in our liver and our muscles, which is chains of glucose called glycogen. And we have about two hours worth of energy in the liver and the muscles. Mm -hmm. And then we have like weeks worth of fat energy in our body. Like even a very lean person has like lots and lots of energy stored as fat in the body. However, the glucose is what you're going to go to first. And then the fat would be more like long-term storage. So really intense exercise, you're going to like deplete a lot of your glucose in about two hours. And if you're metabolically flexible, you'll just quickly bounce over to start burning fat and you're good. If you're me, (laughs) if you're not metabolically flexible, what can happen is that you have essentially a situation like bonking where you're just like, I'm out of energy. I feel like faint. I am hangry. I, you're not shifting gears seamlessly into fat burning. And I don't know if that's what's happening with you, but it's those two examples. I'm Wait, hangry? hangry. I was going to say being hangry is that? Cause that I'm like the number, um, number mm-hmm. one hangry person. I did not know that that was feeling what? like I need food. Oh my gosh. Like we should be able to go days without food. Like we have the energy stores in our body to, to go days without food. We don't actually need to eat. Like people can fast for a week and be fine. Um, but that's Wait, like, like modern day people or like mm-hmm. Jesus time people, because yeah. who is fasting for weeks? People there's, there's patients undergoing cancer therapies now that are fasting for weeks at a time, just eating water, starving their body basically of glucose and using fat as an energy source. Um, cancer cells preferentially like to use glucose. And so, you know, so that's been looked at for especially a lot of liquid tumors, like lymphomas and things like that. And with some really good, interesting results, Walter Longo is a, um, scientist who's working a lot on this stuff. And, um, but the, so the, the, the physiology behind this sort of metabolic flexibility thing is that when glucose is high, or if we've kind of been eating a lot of grains and high sugar foods and stuff throughout our life, we've constantly been doing that little insulin surge, right? And that insulin, aside from getting its big job is to get glucose to come up into the cells for energy, but its other job is to actually block fat from being oxidized for energy. So when Mm -hmm. insulin is high, you can really only preferentially use glucose for energy. You can't tap into those fat stores. And so 
what you can do by tracking glucose is if you over time can keep those glucose spikes lower and lower and lower and ultimately kind of keep a flat line, you're also keeping your insulin you know, from spiking as much. Yeah. And over time that can make you more insulin sensitive. And then you're sort of living in this more um, low insulin, insulin sensitive state, which means that's lifting that break on your fat burning pathways. So that in a situation like that, like you were in where you had maybe run out of your stored glucose, you were eating pistachios, which didn't have a carb source in them. That's just going to be like fat and protein your body's like, we have no energy, maybe because insulin may have still been a little bit high in your bloodstream. I don't, obviously don't know that for sure, but, um, but it's something to think about. And there, there's actually a lot of athletes now that are training in a low carb state. They're training fasted and they're training in a low carb state because they want to get their bodies in a place where they can always tap into fat for energy. So especially like marathon or ultra endurance runners, they don't want to be having to pound gels and glucose drinks and all this stuff throughout a long event. They want to just be able to continue running and not have to be so dependent on exogenous sources of glucose. So if they train in this lower insulin, lower glucose state, they become ultra metabolically flexible. And if you look in their blood, they're actually burning way more fat than your average athlete on sort of a standard American diet. And so it, it kind of creates this endurance freedom, um, but also can signal to your body that like, you're just not hungry because your energy sources are, you've got energy coming to your cells through fat. So mm. yeah. So it'd be fun, interesting thing to kind of experiment with and like, see if these things don't happen overnight. It's, um, yeah. they're pathways that you have to essentially work. And we, we use this term metabolic fitness because it's just like going to the gym. Like as you work these fat burning pathways day in and day out by keeping insulin lower and lower, like they'll work better. And then you can, you know, see if that changes that like desire to kind of have to have a food hit every few hours. So does that, does that love it? Yeah. Sense? It, yeah. it also sounds like it's really going to help my sex life. Once I get my glucose <laughs> together, my <laughs> adrenaline or my endurance, it's going to be really something. <laughs> I mean, it might help the guy too, because, uh, you know, glucose and testosterone super related and glucose and erectile dysfunction, super tight relationship. So yeah, if guys, I mean, this is like, it's now like the skin, like, I'm like, Oh, like, why use an acne cream before right. using glucose tracking? But I'm like, why use Viagra before using glucose tracking? Like, go. this is, yeah. So, <laughs> so wait, so, okay. We're talking about erectile dysfunction and, 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 and is that what we're talking about? That's what I'm trying to clarify. I'm like, what exactly are we saying? Are we saying that they're going to be able to go more rounds? Are we saying that they're going to last longer? <laughs> What exactly is the correlation here? At, at minimum, at minimum, they should be able to get it up, it sounds like. <laughs> at minimum. I'm going to stick with Holly on this one. Yes, that is. <laughs> I, when you think about, when you back up and think about what an erection is, it is rushing of blood throw to the penis, which makes it tumescent, which essentially means, you know, filled with fluid. And that's all it is. And the sugar basically for so many different reasons can have a huge impact on how narrow or wide blood vessels are. Yeah. And so anything you can do to get blood vessels to be more flexible, essentially like it's, again, it comes down to flexibility. It's like yeah. narrow and then be able to get wide when it needs to be that type of like, um, non-rigidity essentially. And then for also 
um, to not have block physical blockages. So like atherosclerosis, like clogged arteries, clogged blockages, those are often a result of chronic hyperglycemia and wow. what's called endothelial dysfunction, which is like the blood vessel linings being dysfunctional and then you can get buildups. And so, yeah, if there's not dynamicism in the blood vessels or if there's physical blockages, both those things can yeah. lead to huge problems with erections. And a lot of forward-thinking urologists and um, family medicine doctors and internal medicine doctors are starting to look at erectile dysfunction essentially as a red flag in young men for probable metabolic disease. So if a man comes in with that type of symptom and like, Hey, can I maybe get some Viagra? Like, what should I do in their forties? You know, this is happening earlier and earlier these days. Um, that is like an immediate red flag for like, Oh, this person, we should do metabolic testing. For yeah. Them. So yeah. This is crazy. amazing how glucose literally touches every aspect of health. This is amazing. Yeah, we like kept you a little over time. I know. Duny, do you have any? I just want to. I want to ask about your personal diet. Like, what Mm -hmm. do you eat? What are your? Yeah, what's you said? You're vegan. So, how long have you been vegan? What's a typical day like in terms of breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks? Ooh, well, so I'm I'm vegan. I I say more specifically, I'm whole foods, plant based. So I, um. Vegan is kind of a catch-all term for you know anyone who doesn't eat animal products, but I think whole food plant-based more characterizes what I'm trying to do with my diet, which is essentially eating whole foods as unrefined as possible um, and focusing mainly on uh, vegetables, fruits, nuts, seeds, beans, spices, and herbs. And so I, I use a ton of nut and nuts and seeds. Like they basically are like the workhorse of, of my replacements for things I, I used to eat. Like I can turn nuts and seeds into milks. I can turn it into creamy dips. I can turn it into an Alfredo sauce. I can turn it into pesto. Like it's just, you know, a cheese dip. I made some insane cashew based queso last night. So you can kind of turn them into like anything. Yeah. And that's been a real creative, fun joy for me over the past few years. I've been doing this for about um, two years. And then I also did it earlier in my, like when I was in my twenties for a couple of years as well. And really it stems from all the nutrigenomic stuff I was talking about. When I started learning about how compounds in food directly change gene expression and cell biology, I was like deep into that world and realized, whoa, the things that change things for the better are often plant compounds. And the things that often change things for the worse are often animal compounds. And I gave that example of leucine, you know, and the mTOR activation, how that leads to acne. And so I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, going to cut out dairy and, you know, reduce my meat and my horrible chronic acne cleared up in like a month and a half, you know? And so it's like, okay, that's interesting. And then learning about plant compounds that like can also be just like really revolutionized health. So like, you know, in turmeric, um, you know, there's a compound called curcumin, which turns mm-hmm. down our in inflammation genes. And, you know, compounds in green tea are like potent antioxidants that buffer oxidative stress. And you learn about these things and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. well, it kind of seems like plants are the way to go. And yeah, exactly. I'm going to try this out because it's what I'm reading on PubMed and all these scientific papers. I'm going to try it out. And the more and more I did that, the more my health was just like radically changed. I felt 10 out of 10, so good, just like felt elevated and light and full of light. And I was like, I'm just going to keep doing this. Like it was such, it's nothing dogmatic. It's nothing, you know, like set in stone. It's more that like, this is just what makes me feel most alive and most joyful. Do you eat bread? 
So I, do, I don't tend to eat bread and this is where CGM has played into it. So I was whole food plant-based for a while. And then I added the CGM layer on top of it when I started levels. And that actually really refined that diet even more. Because what I realized was even within my whole food plant-based diet, there were actually a lot of foods that were still kind of spiking my glucose a lot. So I found that like grapes and corn and definitely bread and a lot of grains that I thought were like whole grain and healthy were like sending me up to 150 or 160. All the things I love. Oh my God. I know. But it's not necessarily like you have to eliminate these things. Some of it's just about how you, what context you put them in. So Mm. if you're going to eat a high carb source, you might want to eat it with a lot of fat and protein. You might want to eat the fat and protein first. Sometimes food timing, how you um, sequence foods has a big impact on glucose spike when you eat them in the day. If you eat carbs earlier in the day, they tend to have less glycemic impact than at night. Um, How you, what other things you use, like vinegar tends to blunt glucose spike. Cinnamon is an insulin sensitizer. Exercising after a meal can lower a glucose spike. Eating your favorite carbs after a good night's sleep will probably have less of a glucose spike than if you eat it when you're tired. So it's not even about like, don't eat these things. It's like how to build the metabolic context to like Mm. not have collateral damage from the food that you're eating um, and get the best possible um, nutrition out of it. But for me, grains were like a big heavy hitter. And I learned all these grain alternatives that I loved, like cauliflower rice, broccoli rice, almond flour bread, um, flax crackers, zoodles instead of pasta, um, black bean pasta instead of regular pasta. There were so many alternatives that I loved that it it wasn't like a a huge thing. So I focus a lot on plants, but I also things that are super important to me in terms of fundamental health is omega-3s like I talked about. So I eat a ton of, I put chia and flax and walnuts on top of like everything I eat. I actually still do take fish oil supplements. So I you know, I, I take like, uh, three grams of omega threes supplements per day because I need, I want those cell membranes in my brain and all over. Is there a brand that you use? Yes. I use, um, I've really loved Nordic naturals. Um, really pure. They filter out, you know, they, they're really good about quality and mercury and all that stuff. And so, that's been a game changer for me. And then the third thing would be fiber. Like mm. the impact between the microbiome and all aspects of health, including metabolic health is profound. And so fiber is essentially food for your microbiome. And so I try and get 50 to 70 grams of fiber a day. Um, the average American gets like 12 grams of fiber a day. And wow. like our microbiome make our neurotransmitters that essentially they make like 70% of the neurotransmitters that control our thoughts, our mood, our energy, our emotion, everything. And so I'm like, I, a lot of what I'm thinking about when I'm preparing a meal is how can I make the bacteria in my gut as happy as humanly possible so that they can then make all the stuff that can make me happy and make me energetic. So I'm like beans, legumes, chia, seeds, like anything I can do that feeds them. It's like, it honestly becomes about like, how can I, how can I serve the bacteria? Like a total weirdo, but you know, it's (laughs) (laughs) like, those are so, so antioxidants, plants, trying to get, you know, 10 to 12 servings of plants a day. Um, low glycemic omega threes and fiber are probably my four biggest things that I focus on with diet. Is there like a a book or something that you follow or is it just all in your brain? This has been, there are so many authors that have been so influential to me in thinking through a lot of this stuff. And then this is sort of my little conglomeration of all of it that mixes 
the, you know, most plant-based people are going to be super into high whole, whole grains and lots of grains and, um, eat as much fruit as you want and all that stuff. And so I've added a little bit of a spin with like, how can we personalize it to make it low glycemic? Um, so that's kind of how I've, I've merged my metabolic stuff with the, with the, the vegan side of things. But like some of the favorite authors that I have like in the nutrition space would be Sarah Gottfried, MD. She wrote the hormone cure, the hormone reset diet, younger mm. brain body diet. She's a total badass OBGYN, OBGYN who went to functional medicine, uh, Mark Hyman, who wrote the Ultra Mind Solution? Um, Joel Furman, he's a plant-based guy. Really interesting stuff. Um, David Sinclair wrote Lifespan. Um, I'm just like looking at my bookshelf. Oh, my bookshelf is right here. <laughs> I've got <laughs> How to Not Die by Michael Greger is like an incredible book. I love him. Um, I think what I'm also hearing is that you'll be writing the book and then you'll come back and discuss it with well, us. I was gonna say launch the podcast. <laughs> Like something that—that's really what I'm hearing is that yeah, this podcast. Yeah, you figured out your own thing, and now you're just gonna tell us how to do it. And I feel like there's such a lane here where this discussion just really isn't being had widely. Certainly not in 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 the circles that I'm in or the things that I'm following. I mean, yes, we talk about eating healthy, we talk about plant based, but not you know at this level Mm. at all. I you can't know. tell you the the last time I've heard someone say the word glucose. So mm. like other no than like you're gonna get diabetes, which like everybody just thinks it's you know because we eat right, and we're like okay, so I won't drink Kool Aid. Fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. And there was a recent study out of US, UNC in 2018 that showed that 88 percent of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. There are only 12 percent of people who are essentially fully metabolically healthy. So, like the fact that we're not hearing glucose like on billboards like all over the world, like yeah. it's in, it's insane to me. Yeah. I mean, it's the lowest. It's also so actionable. I mean, in a month you can clean things up right. and have a huge improvement in your. So it's it's like it's actionable. It's essentially free because you just you know choose different things. We're already paying for food anyways, and it underlies so much. So yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's great to chat about it. I appreciate you giving me the, the forum to, to do it and discuss it with you guys. It's really, of course. Cool. I mean, I'm, I'm ready. Y'all know that I'm part of that 88%. So <laughs> basically we're right. saying, um, that you, we, we can fulfill two more beta testing spots for you. <laughs> yes. You're in. Let's get you in. Let's do it. No, I will follow up and we, we gotta get you in. I would love to hear what you guys learn. But yes. okay. So let's transition. Let's talk about your personal beauty. Uh, take us through your skincare routine. Well, well, first of all, do you have time? Because we have kept you. Oh, yeah, we have. Time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Dooney just asked you another complicated I question. <laughs> it's honestly, it's, yeah, I totally have time. And thank you for asking. I, it's actually not that I like have the worst. I, I don't, I don't very do very little for my skin routine right now. So, um, I, but you look good. Like this is the diet, honestly, yeah. like I'm looking and I'm just like, wow. Okay. Why? Yeah. She's about to be like, yeah, so I haven't face. washed my face. Right. In a week. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you guys. I, what's crazy is that if this had been four years ago, I would have had a huge strip of jawline acne all the way down my neck. Wow. I had it all throughout my twenties through my medical residency or my surgical residency in medical school. It was like just crazy. And I had used everything. I'd used doxycycline for three months. I'd done tretinoin. I'd done, you know, um, 
oh man, like benzoyl peroxide, salicylic acid, everything. And, you know, of course nothing worked. And then changing my diet, it was gone in one month. And now the idea of like getting a zit feels almost like, like, I don't want to say impossible, but like, it just, I know that if I'm on a certain track, it's not going to happen. Whereas it was like, just, I did an Instagram post, um, like six months ago with the sort of before and after and like looking at it, it was just really re-evangelized me. I was like, wow, this is, yeah, I got to stick with this. Um, but, but yeah, so my entire beauty routine is, uh, I use a cure, um, red Moroccan clay scrub, which is like an all natural scrub with rose oil in it. Um, and then I put jojoba oil on my skin after that. Um, and that's it. Um, for my, for my skincare. Um, and I don't wash my face in the morning. Um, so I would say like, so that's really just like the washing and cleaning and moisturizing. Um, I tend to use a sunscreen, but I only use it if I'm like going outside. I try not to overuse sunscreen. I also do want to get sun exposure, you know, in a safe way, but like, um, you know, I think that we all should be wearing sunscreen when we're outside in the direct sun, but I also like to think of sun exposure also from like the inside out as well, because ultimately, Mm -hmm. you know, sun exposure, the reason it causes problems like skin cancer and aging and all that stuff is because it causes DNA damage from the UV rays. Um, And so how do we think about that from the inside out as well? Well, we want to do everything we can with our nutrition and lifestyle to essentially help with DNA repair processes and create I put as much antioxidants in the body to basically buffer the oxidative stress that's caused from UV damage. So while I definitely think sunscreen is important, even something like skin cancer and, and skin, sun damage, so much of it is how it's buffered by your body. And so every time I'm eating vegetables, every time um, I'm eating like a really nutrient-rich plant-based protein, omega-3s, all that stuff, I know that I'm helping buffer any mm. inevitable sun damage that's going to happen. And so Um, so yeah, but I do, um, so that's the skin cleaning. I do use some makeup. And for me, the most important thing about the makeup is that it's fragrance free. And, um, I check everything on the environmental working group website to make sure that it doesn't have toxic chemicals. Not sure. Have you guys used ewg.org? Yeah. I love it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so I'm basically trying to do anything that's like rated a one or a two. So like basically has no known harm. But, um, but one big thing that I really focus on is not using anything that is scented with any natural or artificial scents, because a lot of those chemical compounds can be endocrine disruptors and can seep in through our skin and cause problems. So, um, all my shampoos are unscented or only scented with essential oils. And, um, that's a big focus for me. And then in terms of my makeup, um, products that I love is beauty. I love beauty counter. Um, I like, um, a cure. They have some good products. And, um, what are some of the other ones? Oh, thrive. Um, thrive makes a mascara that's like chemical free. And they also donate to, um, to women's groups, um, especially women who have been affected by domestic violence with all the purchases of their products. So yeah, so beauty counter thrive, a cure. Um, and I keep it really simple. I use a BB cream. Um, I use some mascara, some eyebrow pencil and, um, you know, sometimes a little bit of blush. Um, yeah. I will also mention Ritual de Fill is a, is a non-toxic brand that has really great like cream pigment lipsticks and blushes and things like that. So um, yeah, but those are some of my, nice. some of my favorite things. Yeah. Amazing. Nice. Talia, are we ready for our last question? Do you have we are ready. Else? 
All right. Our last question, Casey, is why does beauty need you? Ooh, I think beauty needs me in particular because we are not thinking as much as we should, I think, about how um, our diet and lifestyle is affecting our expression of beauty. And if I can be a voice that helps people, um, you know, make some healthier choices, even if it's for the purpose of improving certain beauty, you know, outcomes, I think ultimately making those choices is going to actually affect all aspects of health. And when we achieve, you know, elevated health and wellness, whether it shows up in our skin or quote unquote beauty or elsewhere in our body, like that lets us live our fullest lives, helps us show up for our communities in a kind and loving way, helps us have more energy to, you know, rock our purpose and, and really contribute to the world. And so, um, yeah, by focusing on our own health and wellness principles and our own beauty, like I think we can definitely serve others the best. So, um, yeah. Thank you, Casey. Thanks again. Thank you. That wraps another episode. Thanks, Beauty Needs Me family.